So, oftentimes in relationships, you get to this point, and particularly in a dating relationship, where you have this conversation, let's define the relationship. Let's figure out who we are, what we are, what is our commitments. And this becomes from the understanding that we often don't really emphasize here in our culture because really we've lost this understanding of what a covenant is. We, we understand contracts in our culture. We understand a contract. A contract is, to use one, one scholar says, is an in-shaped relationship. I promise to give X so long as I receive Y. I promise to give my commitment to you so long as you give me your commitment to me. And so, for example, in one of the most fundamental relationships we see, that of marriage, we no longer view it as a covenant, we view it as a contract. And so we say, I will give you my fidelity so long as you meet X, Y, and Z requirements for me. And if you don't meet X, Y requirements that I have said I demand from this relationship, then ultimately I am scotch-free from obligating my relationship in this covenant with this contract, excuse me, not covenant, this contract has been broken. And so that's where we get this common view of marriage so often placed of if, we, if I move towards you to an agreed amount, you move towards me an agreed amount, we'll meet in the middle. That's a contract, so to speak, that's set out. The problem is when we view marriage and relationships that way, they are bound to ultimately fail. They will fail. In fact, I, uh, one of my professors who is a counselor uh, said that when, that very, when a marriage has that as their view of the way the relationships work, that relationship will inevitably fail. Why? Because as we saw in the video, we are broken people. We are always going to be selfish, self-centered, and broken. So for us to truly have relationships in any way, it needs to be fine on something else. There needs to be some other way to define it. And the answer for God and the people of God and the way we are to define our relationship with him ultimately comes to this understanding of covenant, which we don't really talk about a lot. And the reason we don't talk about it a lot is because, number one, we don't fully understand it. It can come off as somewhat esoteric theology. And in fact, most of us are saying, oh, man, is this going to be any practical use? But let me suggest to you that it actually, when we fully understand the nature of covenant and the way it unfolds in Scripture, it it overwhelms us with beauty, but actually has tremendous effects on the way we live our life in relationships, even our ethics to the overall community. Actually, it has profound effect even in some of the current events that we see that are going on in the world right now that is taking place. You see, what God is doing is he is seeking to define his relationship with us on the basis of his terms and what he is going to do with us. And so to help us see that, uh, you know, covenant, again, it's an unfolding theme that you see throughout Scripture. And when you look at Scripture, there's essentially three different terms that you're going to see in the Old Testament in particular that what I would call are covenantal terms. The first is the basic covenant term that you see uh, in Scripture, which is kind of a parallel 
uh, to that, and that's the word barit, the Hebrew word barit for covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, you see covenant isn't just defined to the relationship between God and his people. There's, it's used in all kinds of different contexts, and sometimes political treaties, treaties between friends. So, for example, when we were in 1 Samuel, we saw Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David formed a covenant together. Uh, we see it in... Um, uh, especially in the relationship with God, but also in marriage as well. We see that marriage is a fundamental covenant relationship. But that's not the only covenantal terms that you see within there. There are two other very explicitly covenantal terms that we encounter a lot throughout Scripture. And those terms is first, it's the word Hebrew word hesed. It's hard to say without really spitting, so you kind of the splash zone right here. You got to watch out. But it's the Hebrew word chesed, and you see it, and it can often be translated loyal love. Sometimes in your Bibles, it may be translated steadfast love. But it is that covenantal love that you see God has for His people, and that ultimately God calls His covenant people to have for one another. Is the covenant love that we see is to uh, define who we are as a church in our love towards one another and especially in our relationships like our families. Hesed love, as one person said, is ultimately love without an expiration date or love without an exit plan. It is a faithful, loyal love, a steadfast love that really is hard to define but glorious when we see it expressed and used. The, 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 the third term is the Hebrew word emit. It can sometimes be translated truth or faithfulness, but especially when they're put together, this chesed and emit, what you see is the glorious relationship and the strength of place that it becomes this, this place of refuge for God's people within there. And so as we begin this study, I want us to turn to Psalm 117. Now, in Psalm 117, this is actually the shortest chapter in all of Scripture. It's only two verses. And so, and I actually became very familiar with Psalm 117 when I was a teenager because I had a youth pastor that said, basically was very legalistic and said that I had to, to be a Christian, I had to read the Bible at least three chapters every day. And so I found that Psalm 117 was the shortest chapter, and so I played the game and said, well, I'll make that one of my chapters that I read. And so I, it, when you have a checkbook or a checklist theology, it's you, you do the minimum, right? But what's amazing is if I had actually stopped to read the content of these first two words, it explodes out any kind of transactional, any kind of checklist theology that takes place. Because as we read it, what we see is, first off, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Now, right at the bat, you see, and we're reminded, this is the Old Testament. So, in other words, this is still part of God's chosen people. Because as the video said, as God initiates this covenant, he chose specific people to have relationship with. First, he chose Noah, and then ultimately he chose Abraham, and he chose Abraham to have a relationship with him. He initiated this, and ultimately we see that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and so that relationship takes place. And from Abraham, he formed a chosen community, uh, which was Israel. 
And it was through this relationship with Israel that God had this special, unique covenant relationship. But what we see, as we understand, is from that special relationship, even though it was with a specific ethnic people at that time, it was understood that this was part of God's plans to bless and bring about his salvific kingdom to all of the nations, all of the people. So it says right off, even though at this point God's covenant blessings was for the specific people of Israel, it is understood that this covenantal blessing is ultimately for the benefit and the salvation and the, to the praise of the Lord for all the nations. And so praise the Lord, all the nations, extol him, all people. Right? Why? And he's going to go on to say, for great is his steadfast love, his chesed love uh, for us and for the faithfulness, that's the emit, the emit of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. You see, what he's saying here is ultimately that why is all the world to be praised? Why? Because what it says is God is bringing about this restoration of his covenantal relationship. He is going to define the relationship for us, even though we are rebelling in him through this outworking of this covenantal relationship that is defined by love, his loyal love, and his faithfulness. If you look at me today, it is amazing that I'm married. And I'm going to get in so much trouble because I didn't run this illustration by Mariana. But as we were dating, right, uh, and, and I was, well, I was a jerk, okay? I was a jerk, pretty big. And so as we kind of were starting off dating, I was trying to set the brakes a little bit with our relationship. I knew that this was a very special person, and it kind of scared me because I had lots of plans at this time of what I wanted to do. So I was trying to hit the brakes a little bit. I was trying to put a little bit of boundaries there. And you know what Mariana did? She called me on it. She said, uh-uh, we're not doing this. And she says, here's what a relationship looks like. God has called us out on us trying to hold back with him. And he pushes back and says, no, I'm going to overwhelm my people with my steadfast love, with my faithfulness. And he knows that we will ultimately become a changed people through what he is doing. And so this is why the nations are going to praise the Lord. This is why we have hope. And it's a hope that comes from his steadfast love um, for us. Now, the question then becomes, once again, we bring us back to why then care for covenants? Why care for us to stop and understand this theme of covenant? And the first thing I would say is ultimately it helps us understand the Bible. You see, so often... Uh, it's easy for us to look and we can look at the New Testament and we can say, okay, well, I get this. Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again from the third day. Now, the good news is the gospel is so good and so glorious and so for everybody that it puts it on such a level that a five-year-old, a two-year-old really almost can understand it. 
but it becomes this, this incredible glacier that, that is, is, we can see it in its tip and its beauty and glory, but it's just, just the top of the iceberg for the depth and the wonder in which we continue to explore the rest of our lives. And in that exploration, it is always worth it because we begin to see more and more of the goodness and the glory and the wonder of God. And we begin to understand this concept of covenant. We see it as becomes the unfolding of God's rescue plan throughout scriptures. And so it becomes, as we see, the backbone of the way scripture is ultimately organized to help us understand it. Beginning in Genesis and leading us all the way to Revelation. So the more we understand the way this backbone and structure is progressing through to help us understand, the more all of Scripture begins to unfold before us and begins to make sense. We begin to see what God is doing in this relationship with Adam and Eve, what, why it matters so much that he promised a son, a, a, a son of, of Eve that would come and break, uh, uh, crush the serpent's head. We see what is going on with Noah and why he chose Abram uh, and to, to form into a nation. Why you see the special relationship between gods and his people. Uh, the book of Leviticus begins to make more sense to us in the numbers and Deuteronomy. Those places that when we just read them without the context of understanding covenant, it becomes opaque and daunting to where we're like, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. And then we begin to say, well, this just doesn't make relevance to my life. But then it also helps us as we begin to move into the New Testament as well. It begins to make sense what Jesus has done. And so the verse that we read from, uh, from Romans that Alexa read today, we, when we could hear it, from, on one level we can understand it as beautiful, but when we begin to see it as the unfolding of God's covenant, as Christ is the second and better Adam, that, that verse that Alexa read just explodes with purpose and meaning and wonder. When we begin to see that, all of we begin to understand, we begin to see the beauty of Scripture that is unfolding before us. We see the beauty and the wonder, and we, and, and we don't want to just skip through some of the, the lost sections, but we want to see how Christ fulfills them. We want to see how they unfold before us. And then, even in the New Testament, if we, begin, we begin to see Christ in new and wonderful and beautiful ways. So, for example, when Christ is tempted, right? When he goes out, after having been anointed God's Messiah, he moves out into the desert, right? And he fasts for 40 days, and then he's tempted. We understand as we see how all this is unfolding and that he is, 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 is be the true Israel of God. We see that this temptation is symbolic for how he was faithful, whereas Israel failed. Where Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, and they did not believe God. They did not trust God at his word. Jesus was faithful. And when we see how he is fulfilling this Old Testament promises, of, and he is the true Israel, we step back and we're like, wow. It takes new wonder and meaning for us as well. And in doing so, what we begin to see is it helps us see the answers in the Bible. 
You see, we live in a world that is hungry for answers, as hungry for understanding. It also wants to, because we're so within an enlightenment period, uh, uh, we want to break everything down into such small molecule parts. And when it's easy for us to do so, we miss some of the great apologetic of scriptures, how it answers so much of the angst and the anger and the longings within our hearts. But when we see the overall flow and the beauty of Scripture, we see it becomes a powerful apologetic that cries out meaning to our world. And in fact, some of the greatest apologetics, for example, Augustine's City of God, is essentially that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, here's how our culture is in the Roman society is answering some of these big questions, these big longings within our hearts. Now let me move through Scripture and show how what, what Scripture says of God's unfolding kingdom, the city of God, this unfolding kingdom, actually answers these questions in a far more grander, more satisfactory way. It also helps us with our identity within there, right? What does it mean? It helps shape who we are. It blows up so much of the isolated individualism that we have, that we cherish so much in our culture, and it places us in the story of Scripture. It places us in the understanding of who we are in God's family, right? Now, if you've been around here, you know that a lot of times what we say in application to so many sermons is ultimately you must find your identity, all of your worth in Christ. But as we begin to understand that identity, that becomes far more uh, robust and pregnant with meaning and an understanding of what does it mean to find our identity in Christ. And to do so, we begin, we need to understand ourselves within the context of God's covenant community as well. And then ultimately, what it does then is it helps us with our ethics. If God is forming us into this covenant community, what do we do with some of these Old Testament commands? What do we do? How do we put together the Old and the New Testament? Even some of the answers that we're trying to struggle with in today's, for example, what is our relationship with, uh, national, with the, the national entity of, and the government of Israel, for example? Well, we come in different places as in Christians. In many ways, it comes to our understanding of how the covenants work between the Old and New Testament. And so for us to be able to truly engage in those conversations, we need to understand the covenants. But ultimately, bringing us back to Psalm 117, why do we care? Because ultimately, it brings us back to praise. We begin to see that what Christ is doing in us is Christ is for us in the fact that he is the one who has fulfilled all of the covenant obligations for us when we are unable to fulfill them, but he is also Christ in us. He is Christ for us and he is Christ in us. As he indwells us, he fills us with his resurrection power and calls us to be a community that is revealing God's kingdom in and through us as his righteousness flows because of his grace in God's covenant kingdom in his community that leads not only us to praise him, but the whole world to see the glory of God 
and result in the nations being glad and leading to praise within them. So what we see within this is ultimately the covenant is a glorious, good, and wondrous gift. It is a gift. If we were trying to define covenant, and we're trying to kind of get to it, uh, one Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walkie, defined it this way. It's a solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. A solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. Now, here's the problem with that. As another scholar, Palmer Robertson, said, trying to define a covenant sometimes becomes like trying to define what is a mother, right? We can give a definition, but those definitions, they don't feel, <laughs> they can in many ways kind of neuter the emotional and the wonder and the impact of what this covenant relationship is. And when we see what God has done for us in forming us in this, this covenant, we're blown in a way amazed. Because as we look at covenant, what we see is that we see three things that make covenant so glorious and wondrous. And the first thing that we see that makes us so in awe that God himself is the one who has made a solemn commitment of himself, the living God, towards us, fallen, broken people, to undertake an obligation is that God is the one who initiates it. He is the one who chooses the people. This is his doing. Nobody found some way to kind of wrangle him into this promise. What we did in Adam and Eve is we rejected God's throne. We rejected his kingdom. But yet God, despite our rejection, despite our fickleness, God in his great love chooses to come into this covenant. And he chooses those whom he moves into this covenant relationship with. He initiates, he does it. And what he does in this covenant relationship that we see is he redeems and saves his people. As he chooses his people, you see this constant pattern. He redeems them. He, in other words, he purchases them out of their place of darkness, out of their place of rebellion, and he saves them. He moves them out of a kingdom of darkness and into this kingdom of light. For example, the people of Israel. And this becomes a major theme of, uh, of, of what God is doing. And in fact, uh, it becomes the theme in the Gospels, the Exodus event. His people were enslaved, right? And so this people were enslaved. So he redeems them. He reclaims them as a people. He takes them out of that kingdom in which they were enslaved. And he brings them and redeems them and moves them into his place that he has chosen for them. This is a complete act of grace before any covenant stipulations were given. He redeems them before he gives them the Mosaic law. This is a work of his grace and his mercy within there. And what you see in Christ in the New Testament is these constant themes of the Exodus. They, they become these patterns of redemption that become typified over and over and repeat themselves in the New Testament. 
And when we begin to see how this exodus, uh, God is re-bringing back this, this exodus type redemption through Christ, it makes us just in awe of wonder of what he has done. And what God, and the third thing that God does is he chooses to show that people blessing based on his faithfulness, on his faithfulness. So if we go back to Psalm 117, look at this again. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Now, what the people of Israel are saying, nations, you need to praise. You need to be in awe. You need to rejoice. Why is that? It isn't because of Israel's faithfulness. Because you know what? That is a very sketchy place to find any kind of refuge in. Because Israel was terrible at being faithful. But no, the nations are to be glad. They're to praise. Why? Because of the faithfulness, the chesed of God, the faithfulness, the emit of God, the steadfast love of God within them. We find a security in these covenant relationships that is bound in the strength of the almighty living good God. And what you see in that relationship is God is bringing back, bringing in his peace and crashing it into this broken world. It is his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we were to look, we are to understand that God in his kingdom has always been sovereign over all of creation, even in the rebellion. However, in the rebellion, we in this world made this covenant choice to rebel against God, to reject his covenant. But he is coming back in, and and of course, the result of that is murder, violence, death, injustice, all these things that just cause us to look and say it's the problem of evil. And we as humans have tried to deal with this problem and the chaos that comes from our barbaric behaviors, that comes from our sinful desires, that is in each and every one of us, every one of you, including me. And different societies have tried to find different ways to bring this about. And of course, in the time of Rome, it was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And how did that come? That came through the sword. That came through the conquering of Rome. And we will will scare to death all those who would seek to challenge our kingdom with the sword. But how does God bring about his kingdom? He brings about his kingdom through chesed, love, and his faithfulness. And so we see, and I know this is going to be a little bit of a long quote here, but two theologians write this. Our covenant Lord has given us the supreme privilege of knowing him. And as we give our life to his worship and his servant kings are fully devoted and obedient to him in every domain of life, God's rule is extended and his covenant people and to the entire creation. So do you see that? How does he choose to extend this? Through his rule, through his people. 
And although God is completely self-sufficient and does not need us to achieve his purposes, he has amazingly chosen us to realize his sovereign rule in this world in the context of covenant relationships of loyal love, chesed, and faithfulness, emit. Thus, it is through the covenant relationships that we fulfill the purpose of our existence in relationship to our covenant creator, covenant Lord. See, what this is saying, friends, is this. God has chosen to redeem his people and to change us and ultimately reclaim back this world by loving a people so thoroughly, so wonderfully, so beautifully that we are ultimately beautified and changed by this love that he has for us. And that's why we need to understand that relationships are extraordinarily important in understanding our identity as a covenant people. It, and this challenges and this, this disrupts our current society, which our current society is obsessed with individualism. But in the coming of the God's kingdom, we see the context, the arena is love. Now, of course, this is all through an individual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace. But he changes us in the context of our relationships. And there are still two extremely important relationships that we see God calls us to reveal God in. And these relationships, though very imperfectly, even in its most imperfect in some way, point us to ultimately our relationship with God in Christ. And that's the, con the context of the covenant family and the covenant community, which is the church within there. And so, you know, one of the things whenever I do marriage counseling, one of the, the big things that I try to help these, these two individuals, this man and the woman, come um, to understand is that their relationship and their desire to become married is sacred because of that reason. It reflects the bride and the image and the love of Christ towards us. You are entering not into a marriage contract, but into a marriage covenant. It is the idea that in this covenant relationship, you are promising to love that person unconditionally without expiration date or without an exit plan. It is a promise, and within that we see how that fulfills such a deep longing within us. We each long for that kind of deep love to know that because each of us, we all struggle. We know deep down, no matter how arrogant, no matter how self-confident we are, we, we know deep down our unworthiness. We know deep down, we wonder, will we truly be loved? And the covenant promises us that as we, in the, in the context of a marriage relationship, for example, that we can be totally vulnerable. We can be exactly who we are and it is the promise of future love, right? And so that's why when I talk to people about doing marriage vows, I always have to say it cannot be just about 
how you feel about that person right now. It can't just be a declaration of, hey, here's the ways I've loved you and we've shown our love in the past. But in these vows, you are making the promise of future love within there. Because that's what covenant love is. Now, and that's why when people abuse these covenant relationships, whether they're in the church or the marriage, it is so horrific. It's so broken and so messed up. And you see just the turmoil that just it, that comes in its wake. But there's not just in the marriage relationship, but it's also, and this is one of the things that we don't emphasize and we don't see often, it's also in the context of God's covenant community, which is the church. You see, and this is why we still have this weird thing called church membership. Because we understand that God is shaping his covenant people through the arena of forming us into a gathered people that finds its identity in Christ, that understand that we are welcomed into this community, not because of anything you've done, not because you're, you're rich enough or you're, you're poor enough, not because you're good-looking enough, not because you're male or female, because you come from an esteemed family, or because you're just better than your neighbor and morally that week. But you're welcomed into this community, gathered into them through the love of Jesus Christ, and formed into this people that begin to, as they celebrate, as they rejoice in this love that has saved us, that has redeemed us, we begin loving and serving one another. We begin expressing this covenant love. And we become more and more like Christ in the context of that covenant community. And that covenant community matters. See, in our current culture, what happens is we lose any sense of that covenant faithfulness. Now, I know many of you guys are saying, look, I'm here, you're preaching to the choir. Yes, I am, I know that. But us coming to church and our relationship to church matters because it becomes the arena in which God is shaping and changing us as we love one another and as we show a steadfast love to one another. And we celebrate these commitments and what God is doing through these signs of baptism and communion. And so last week, we celebrated baptism. We had three people. And I am so thankful for that, that baptism, because we understand each and every one of us was blessed. The people who are baptized were blessed because they were reminded that they had been brought into this community of chesed, love, and faithfulness in which we are promising to love them faithfully and truthfully with a steadfast love. But also we are blessed in the same way through acknowledging that they will love us with the same regard, the same covenant community, and we will be loved as we serve one another, as we wash one another's feet, as we forgive one another when we've messed up, when we sow the same faithful love to one another that Christ has shown us. 
But we also celebrate, and here at Grace Covenant Church, we do this once a month, we celebrate this covenant relationship in communion. And this communion is an important sign because with this, we are constantly reminding ourselves of the covenant community in which we are in. We reminded ourselves of the source, the means by which we enter into this covenant community is only through the sacrifice of Christ, who was the ultimate Passover lamb, the fulfillment of all the laws of God. And on himself, he took upon himself the wrath and the judgment of God upon himself for us so that we might be received by God. We celebrate that as we take his, his, Christ is for us. We also reveal the fact that Christ is in us as we take this sacrifice into our bodies. And we do it not individually. And that's one of the reasons that when we come and we take the elements, we don't just take it right then. And I'm not trying to cast judgment on certain churches that do that. But this is one of the things that the way we do things tells a story, Right? And so we come and we take the elements and we go back to our chairs and then we all take it together. Why? It's a reminder that we are feasting in this meal together as a covenant family. Together. Christ has united us. And then what do we do after communion? Will we stop and do we do the passing of the peace? We greet one another because we recognize we have been made one with Christ and being one with Christ we, we fellowship with one another. We've been brought into this family. But scripture teaches us there's a way that we can take of this element, this sacrifice in an unworthy manner for us to be flippant about what Christ has done for us. You know one of the main ways that we become flippant towards this meal at least in the Corinthian church, is because they viewed, certain people viewed themselves as being more worthy of this meal than others. In other words, it was a break in the relationship between one another. And how do we view ourselves more worthy? Well, first off, if we look at somebody else and say, well, I'm more worthy to take of that than them. We view ourselves as higher up but also if we say, I'm more worthy of forgiveness than this other person, or if we hold back our forgiveness, if we hold back our love for someone else in the community, we are making light of this covenant community that is taking place. And so we're gonna participate in this covenant meal together. And what do I want us to do in this time? First, I want us to celebrate. This isn't something that's just, oh, well, it's time for us to get up. I guess we'll go do this so I don't look like a weirdo because I'm, I'm not taking the elements. We hold on to this and we celebrate. This is a sign. I have been received by Christ. I am changed. I am fundamentally different because of Christ's love that has met me where I am at. His grace has sought me, and I am changed. I am part of a covenant community because of him. I have a family. But this is a reminder that we are, though we are unworthy of this love, we can trust in it.
we can take it into ourselves and trust that it will nourish us. No matter how broken we may feel, we can trust that God will provide for us. He will be there for us. He has a future for us. There's a recognition that God has called me to take as well the relationships and the way I love the people around me in this room of the utmost importance and seriousness because it reflects Christ's love towards me.